You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. Alongside me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Uh, ben, we're here doing the co-main event podcast once again on a Monday. President's Day. President's Day. What, what? Uh, but I suppose we owe it to our listeners to include them in this conversation that there are serious talks ongoing between our representatives about moving the co-main event podcast to Tuesdays? You know, yeah, our people have discussed it. A part of me believes that it's too easy a fix, and the MMA gods will never let this happen the way we think it's going to, that we can move it to Tuesday, and they'll just make sure that the big news always drops on Tuesday evening or something. I don't know. But then another part of me thinks, well, it seems like Monday being the day right after events usually, that's about when drug testing news comes out or new fight booking news. And I don't know, maybe I figure we give it a shot and see what happens. Yeah, there certainly is uh, some rhyme and reason to the idea that Tuesday is a big news day, right? Like the week has just started on Monday. Uh, like you said, uh, business mail is probably showing up that Monday afternoon. Uh, so that, I think that there's a certain amount of logic to it, but also you take a week like this week when if we were recording on Tuesday, we would probably be recording at the exact time that the Nevada State Athletic Commission will be having their uh, well-publicized meeting and the UFC is going to have this uh, PEDs press conference we're led to believe on Wednesday. So it still wouldn't really solve our problem. Well, listen, no one's saying that this is a magic bullet. No one's saying that. Right. It but just, it, is, it is something to think about, right? It is. So I don't know if we should solicit comment from the co-main event universe because, uh, you know, everyone thinks it's super funny when the news breaks the day after we do our show. Uh-huh. But at the same time, I have a feeling we're going to ruin a lot of people's Tuesday morning commutes to go see their POs or whatever they're doing. Yeah. Uh, and if how we much, move the show to later in that day. How much, how many bullshit tweets are we going to have to put up with from people on Monday night? You know, like, where's the podcast at? What's wrong with you guys? Right. I mean, there's, there's at least like six weeks of that in our future if we change the recording date. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe we should have like a, a, a poll or something with it. We've had poor luck doing audience <laughs> polls in the past, but I think we should pretend to solicit uh, comments and thoughts and then just do whatever the hell we want to anyway. So like a WWE ask the audience style yeah, thing. There we go. Or like, oh, what do you know? The audience wanted to see John Cena wrestle Randy Orton. So here you go. <laughs> or basically, you know, like the our version of the applause meter pretty much. <laughs> That's something to think about. Anyway, big doings uh, behind the scenes here at the at the CME. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast once again is brought to you by DraftKings.com. I actually think that this weekend would be a good weekend to try out DraftKings.com and sign up to play in one of their daily fantasy sports tournaments. Uh, we got Frank Mir versus Antonio Silva in the main event on Sunday, which is kind of an oddball thing. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later in the show. Uh, but, you know, some for starters, somebody's definitely going to get knocked out. Right. So that right there doesn't even have to be just one person that right there cuts down your potential outcomes 
for you to pick on the on the fantasy service. Uh, and also, I think if you go to DraftKings.com this weekend, it's going to be like you're missing the crowds. It's going to be like you're going to Disneyland on Christmas Day. There you right? go. You want to ride Space Mountain? No lines. There you Just go. Just walk right up and hand your Disney bucks or whatever to the guy at the front. And you're on your way. Same thing at DraftKings.com this Sunday. Less competition, fewer ace MMA fanatics like yourself out there playing the game. End result, you win a big pile of cash. And get to ride Space Mountain. Or I'm sorry, are we still sticking with that analogy? Or That was a, that was a, a little few seconds ago okay all right just pick five fighters and stay under the salary cap you score points when your fighters rack up statistics like significant strikes takedowns sweeps knockdowns and knockouts submissions you gain bonus points based on which round your fighters end their bouts in i'd go round number one if i were going to pick the main event this weekend but that's just me uh these are the biggest daily fantasy contests and mixed martial arts ever DraftKings.com awarded over 300 million dollars last year year if you're new to draftkings.com you can use the promo code cme when you sign up ben tell them how to do it well chad you hurry to draftkings.com and use promo code cme to play daily fantasy mma for free this weekend you could win your slice of one billion dollars in prizes being awarded this year enter cme to play for free now at draftkings.com DraftKings.com, that is DraftKings.com. We got to send a big shout out this week to avid CME listener Simon Chin from Stoke, England. The word is that he ruptured his patella tendon Oh no! a couple weeks back, and so he had to have a big operation last week. We hope that he's at home recuperating. We hope that he's whacked out on painkillers as he listens to the co-main event podcast. Uh, so get well, Simon Chin, from the fictional city of Stoke, England. And be glad that you do not live in the United States of America, where you would probably be uh, experiencing bankruptcy right yep. now. Paying out the ass instead you live in stoke england which is not a place but uh I'm, I'm pretty sure they probably have a pretty good health care program over there this week's music also comes from an international location from listener ryan james he's also a music producer in ontario canada uh, if you like what you hear from him you can find more of his stuff at soundcloud.com slash ryan james official We'll definitely put a link to that up on the website, comainevent.com, when we get this uh, episode posted. Three rounds, as usual, this week for the Comain Event podcast. In round number one, it turns out all Benson Henderson had to do to make us love him was gain a little weight. And in round number two, with a Nevada State Athletic Commission meeting on Tuesday and a UFC press conference on Wednesday, are we finally, excruciatingly, after all this bullshit, going to get some damn answers about PEDs and MMA? I feel like a sucker just saying that. And in round number three... There's good news and bad news at UFC Fight Night 61. The bad news is the main event is Frank Mir versus Bigfoot Silva. The good news is the card starts two hours earlier than normal, and there ain't no way this one's going five rounds, so maybe we'll all finally get a good night's sleep. I jinxed it probably, actually, by saying that. Way to go. Probably totally going five rounds now. I mean, it's, it's one or five. Come on. We know that those are the odds. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Rusty Poor. He writes, Dan Kelly versus Patrick Walsh this weekend shows us that bad and terrible fights do and probably always will exist. I'm just curious, what is the worst fight you guys have 
ever seen. Uh, I do want to answer that question. I do want for us to talk about what is the worst fight we've ever seen. Uh, but I also, uh, I think we would be remiss to not say a few words about Dan Kelly versus Patrick. Walsh. Oh yeah, I we, think we have a few words we can say. Now here. you you took in this event on DVR. I did. Right? So you didn't actually experience the excruciating, soul crushing pace of this event as it happened live. Well, no, not the whole way through. But here's what happened: I DVR'd it right, um, and I was running around on on Saturday doing stuff, hanging out with my family, and then I started to watch the prelims. Um, and skipping through the, the commercials and everything. And I caught up to live TV right about at this point. Oh, and I wow. watched like bad the, timing. Yeah, I man. know, I know. And I watched like the first two rounds and I was like, you know what? My daughter wants to watch Frozen. So damn it, we're watching Frozen. Like wow. we're not missing Hold anything up. here. Stop the presses. You turned off UFC Fight Night 60 in the middle of Dan Kelly versus Patrick Walsh to watch Frozen. That's right. And I don't regret that decision at all. Frozen is surprisingly good. I'll give I, that to it. I, I have not seen it. My daughter has only seen it once. And that was, oh, uh, you know, in terms of her short life a long time ago, uh, but still is completely obsessed with it, just yeah. like every other girl her age on the planet, even though she has almost no firsthand uh, like exposure to it well, at all. Well, that's how my daughter was about it when she had only seen the first 10 minutes like three times because her attention span just wouldn't allow her to get any further than that. But she wasn't feeling too well, so she, you know, being ill makes her a little more likely to just kind of sit there in a comatose state uh, watching a movie or at least staring blankly at the, in the direction of the screen for a while. But, you know, I stopped this one kind of midway through being like, what am I doing? What am I doing? I don't have to do this right now because I didn't have to work. Uh, so I, I could take my time with this one. But then I came back and and I you know, just kind of skipped through just to see if anything interesting happening. I, I managed to successfully avoid all spoilers, which really made this an enjoyable way to, to finish off watching the main card on DVR the next morning. The thing I'll say about this fight, though, was obviously it was not a good fight. No. It was one of those that makes you wonder, how did these guys get on TV? Like, how did this yeah, happen? On the main card, nonetheless. And this is my only critique, really, of the broadcasting duo of Brian Stan and John Anik, which is become by far my favorite broadcasting team. Yeah, that's the A-list team. It is. It's the A-list team doing the B-list shows. Yeah. Uh, Because why? Because tradition. Yeah. The the UFC needs to get it together in that regard and and make those guys the varsity. Um, But my one complaint about them would be when there is a fight that's like a a bit of a stinker like this, and maybe it's just because neither one of them feels comfortable enough in the position yet to do this, neither one of them will do what Joe Rogan will do, which is to say – this fight sucks. And right. that's something you can say for Joe Rogan. He is not like, he's just so, he, he, he's not worried at all about repercussions of doing that. And we've seen him do it before and say, this is not a good fight. Mike, you know, that kind of stuff. And Brian Stan and John Anik, they just kept kind of pretending like, you know, there was something here to break down. Like this was worth talking about instead of what doing what I would have liked to see them do late in the second round is just giving up and being like, this is garbage. Just bury it. This is what you were looking garbage for. ass shit. Right okay. Here. Well, yeah. I mean, you're right about that. And not that I want to make too big of a deal out of Dan Kelly versus Patrick Walsh, because I would hate to think that this fight of all fights is instructive in any way, but it actually kind of is like, if you were looking for a, for one garbage fight, to make the centerpiece of your oversaturation argument. Like this is it because this fight winds up on the main card. Catch weight fight, by the catch way. weight fight because Dan Kelly misses weight weighs in at 191 and a half pounds. 
And then you got Dan Kelly, who's a 37-year-old Australian judo player, right? Judoka. It wasn't Walsh who missed weight. That's what oh, I said, Dan. No. Oh, oh, wait. Yeah, you're right. Patrick Walsh. Sorry. Yes. I don't know how I got the two of them confused. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so you got Dan Kelly, who's the, the judo guy, right? 37-year-old Australian judo player. Uh, and he's fighting Patrick Walsh, who doesn't have a Wikipedia page, or else I could tell you more about him. But he's some kind of former amateur wrestler. And Dan Kelly's out there limping around with his knee sleeve on. Uh, Looking kind of George Sotoropoulos. Yeah, exactly. And and Patrick Kelly's entire offense is winging hillbilly haymakers from his back pocket. And, like, frankly, it looks like a fight that you would see at a small-time independent MMA show. And not even the main event of a small-time independent MMA show. Maybe co-main. Maybe. So this is one where you were like, I don't know how you look at this fight and still straight-facedly make the argument that they're not doing too many events, too many fights. Yeah, I wonder, too. I mean, this is a, maybe an argument for sometimes when they have these Fox Sports 1 cards and it's like you've got six fights on the main card and only four fights on the prelims. At what point are you just – and the, the prelims and the main card both take place on the same network. So – where is the line anymore between like what's prelim and what's main car? You basically just thrown a bunch of crap on there and just kind of drawn an arbitrary point and said, okay, these are prelims and these are main cars. There's supposed to be like a qualitative distinction, right? And there's that's that clearly not being made here. And just asking people to sit through six fights on the main card. Uh, also that, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, when you get to your main event, it starts just as the broadcast is supposed to be ending. I mean, how many times do we need to make that same mistake before we learn something here? Right. Not to mention, you know, promo packages, video stuff. Right. I'm never going to skip out back, on a single promo going package. Going back to the desk. Yeah. Uh, and lots of Brandon Thatch-oriented video packages on this show. I don't know if you stopped to watch them, but it was Hell like... no one stopped really to wanted to introduce Brandon Thatch to the people at home, which... You know how that goes. Yeah. MMA gods are up there just laughing, just, just cackling. I'm just sitting there with their remote making the noise as I go whoop, whoop, whoop through all that stuff. <laughs> uh, no, the question yes, about the worst fight you've ever seen. What's the worst fight you've ever seen? Because I know what mine is, uh, and I've seen some bad stuff, especially at small independent MMA shows. Okay, I think that I was going to make that that point, though. I think you should cut out okay. anything from small. Indep- like, it's just not fair. It's right. not Because I, I was going to say the worst fight was when the development mentally delayed guy showed up at sport fight in like a pair of purple biker shorts and a gi top and didn't have a corner just like showed up by himself and fought somebody from team quest who you could tell felt bad about it i know i've talked about this on the show before several times but like that dude just like took like the wrestler just took him down and choked him out in like three seconds and it was I would say sobering, but no, most of the people there were wasted. So, <laughs> I'm gonna say, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could go with this. I mean, you could you, you go upper echelon and say like Anderson Silva, Tallas Latis, like that was pretty. That's bad. a bad fight. Um, the one that really stands out for me, where and maybe this was because it was a the era where we, it was the first time I remember like had a like watching a UFC pay per view and being like, what am I sitting through? This is awful. Someone please make it stop. Was Gabriel Gonzaga versus Kevin Jordan at UFC 56. Oh, yeah, that one was bad. I think we watched that one together at a friend Gilman's house, and it ends like in the last 30 seconds where Gonzaga lands a Superman punch that knocks out Kevin Jordan and just like shatters his damn jaw right there. But everything before that was excruciating to sit through just no real action and i think it was the one where even the announcers even rogan even back then in 2005 just being like this sucks and then one good punch bang 
ends it, but they've waited until like the last possible minute to give us a reprieve from that fight. That's one that stands out for me. Yeah, you got to go way back in the stacks for this one, but Dan Severn and Ken Shamrock at UFC 9 when they fought in Detroit, and this was back when they were trying to get the UFC legalized, uh, MMA legalized in various places, and I think the story is that at the 11th hour, the authorities in Detroit, Michigan, which... uh, uh, is kind of, you know, sort of ironic considering the setting, but like informed the Ken Shamrock and Dan Seven that they would be like fined and or arrested if they hit each other using closed fists during the fight. So this fight really is 30 minutes, all one round, by the way, back in those days of just two guys circling each other and never really like engaging. In any kind of substantive way. Yeah, that doesn't sound very fun. It's terrible. I don't know. I still don't know if I've ever actually watched it all the way through without fast forward. Because you can put it on fast forward and just watch them circle <laughs> each other for th- for 30 minutes. Uh, I will say now that I'm looking this up, the UFC 56, which I've referenced. By the way, back when they were still doing names for events, UFC 56, full force. Not not half force, Chad. Not a portion of the force. No. Full force. You remember what the main event of that one was off the I top of your head? Couldn't possibly. Rich Franklin versus Nate Quarry, uh, oh, the man now involved in a yeah. lawsuit against the UFC. Gonzaga and Jordan was the co-main. Oh, that's rough. And, you know, but then you go down under, uh, elsewhere on the main card before Gonzaga Jordan was Matt Hughes versus Joe Riggs, the diesel, uh, and George St. Pierre versus Sean Shirk. And before that, Jeremy Horn versus Trevor Prangley. It was not a bad lineup until you get to the co-main. Gonzaga and Kevin Jordan just sucked all the life out of the room. Then we needed Rich Franklin to come in there and <laughs> knock Nate Corey stiff to kind of bring people back to their feet again. Next question this week comes from Reese Burgess. He writes, judging from the ending of his prelim fight this past weekend, the Dundasso is strong in Chaz Skelly. Discuss vigorously. Did you watch this one? Yes. Because the end of this one is also pretty bad. Uh, and also, I think, ser- serves to, like, underscore the point of how the rules, we, we still are at this point in this sport, even now, where we take this, like, subjective approach where we decide when and how we want to enforce the rules. Uh, and also how difficult it would be to have, like, a real functional rule set, like, meaningful rule set in this sport, uh, because... You get this situation where Chaz Skelly needs the guy he's fighting. I can't remember his name. What was it? Uh, needs the guy he's fighting in the face. Uh, uh, it was Jim, Jim Ayers. Ayers. Uh, or Allers? Ayers? Uh, right, right at the end of the fight when Chaz Skelly is clearly about to win. Uh, yes. Nonetheless, knees him right in the face with an illegal blow. The, the bout is stopped. Chaz Skelly uh, is awarded the victory through some sort of like half-assed, obvious lie explanation from the referee. Uh and then, so that seems weird, but at the same time, like it would also seem weird to give to like take that victory away from Chaz Skelly. But like, I always come back to like, if you're going to have rules and the rules are supposed to mean anything, you have to enforce them, even if it seems inconvenient. But then on the same card, you've got the uh, uh, Cole Miller Max Holloway fight where Cole Miller gets headbutted pretty bad, but like. It's obviously accidental, and Cole Miller almost seems complicit in it in a way, just because how the action went down. He's sort of like pulling Max Holloway toward him, trying to get uh, the tie clinch, and then he gets he gets headbutted in the in the in the head. Well, uh, they're pretty different situations, but I think they, right. But you've got a situation where like I don't like it when you try to judge intent right in like this knee to the face that Chaz Skelly lands, but at the same time, 
you look at that other one and it's like, well, that was just completely incidental. So it's like, it's a fine line, I think, a lot of the times. And I think that's one of the things, like the diverse action in this sport just makes it really hard to police in a meaningful way. Yeah, and this one kind of reminds me of what we were talking about with the Tiago Alves, uh, Jordan Meehan uh, about a couple weeks ago because this is kind of the opposite situation where Chas Kelly, he drops Jim Ayers, Jim, he drops Jim. Jim uh, A. uh, Drops Jim A., and, you know, it all kind of happens bang, bang real quick where he drops him and he goes when he goes to th- begin the process of throwing the knee, uh, it's legal. There's nothing down on the ground right. yet. No, not a hand or a knee is down yet. So he's throwing the knee as it's legal. And then in the instant before the knee lands, that's when uh, Jim A becomes a downed opponent. And it's kind of the opposite before where in the Jordan Meehan bout, he, he was down. Uh, Alves goes to throw a knee and, you know, if you kind of like instinctually pick up your hand to go to block that knee or something, you make it a legal blow before it hits you. And and this was the opposite. I mean, like, what are you supposed to do there, really? Because you're right that we do do kind of a bullshit thing of like, uh, we, you know, we don't want to mess with that one. We don't want to mess with the results. So we'll come up with some kind of explanation afterwards why we shouldn't revisit it. But then what are you supposed to do? Stop the fight? Um penalize him somehow what are you going to do you're going to take a point you're going to disqualify him well, I think, like that? yeah like that's the kind of unfortunate thing is that in that situation i think you have to disqualify him if you're if you're gonna like police the rules in an objective and like you know if you're gonna if you're gonna police the rules the same way across the board like a dude lands a blatantly illegal strike uh that, that results like or occurs i guess at the same time of, of the stoppage like it's hard to do anything but disqualify the guy yeah. at that point unless you're going to just completely ignore it which is what we decided to do uh <laughs> so and it's like and the you know the i think that like you gave the good example there that it's hard to you know that that it's hard to call the these kind of strikes uh especially like live and as it happens and it just seems to me it just kind of dawned on me as you were talking that like eventually are we going to get to the point where we have like nfl style rules where like each individual rule is so ridiculously complex and intricate that it just doesn't make any sense and you have to use uh instant replay like every five minutes to figure out whether a guy was making a quote-unquote football move yeah or whatever and well you know whether he had possession of the ball well the like, difference is like you can make those you can stop the game and review that stuff and do everything in football to kind of make sure you get the call right without uh seriously affecting the outcome of the game and you can't like mixed martial arts is just different than all those other sports and that you can't uh, you can't stop the action and figure it all out without right. also having an undue influence on the action right. itself. I think moreover, though, it's a, just a case of those of football, for example, being like a hundred years older than mixed martial arts. So they've had a lot more time to uh, supplement the rule book, I guess you would say. That's so, true. I don't know. Maybe we can you get it, invent a time machine and find out what things look like a hundred years from now. Next question comes from Jesse White Deer. He writes, so let's talk Bellator for a sec. Let me start with, I feel I may have cursed Melvin Manhoff on Friday. I came home in just enough time for the main event. As I was watching Slominko throw some spinning shit, I thought, what if one of those lands? Then boom, fight's over. Manhoff is out. So spinning shit sometimes works? Question mark? Anyway, Manhoff has back-to-back KO losses where he's been, as Dana White would say, starched. Where does this leave him? 
nowhere good. Yeah, I can tell you where it leaves him doing the robot, like doing a weird breakdancing move before collapsing on the on the canvas uh, in the land of Nod. Wasn't I just talking before this one about how he's one of those guys who gets just knocked all the way out in a scarier and scarier fashion? Yes, as and his this career goes this on? outcome made you look prescient. Uh, but not necessarily a surprising outcome that like the spinning shit would work because God damn it, Alexander Schlemenko was going to keep throwing that spinning shit in, in less, until it worked. Like if he won this fight, that's going to be how it went down because yeah. he wasn't going to do anything else. You know, doesn't it seem though like Manhoff has reached that kind of Chuck Liddell phase of his career where the it's just happening too easy at this point? Like, not that, you know, Alexander Slomenko can't knock a dude out or let Joe Schilling can't knock a dude out. Those guys have power. They can hurt you. Uh, but it does seem like uh, he, he's gotten to that point where it doesn't take as much as it used to take. And his fighting style is so aggressive and wide open that it just makes you think this is going to keep happening to him. Well, yeah. And, like, you might not know it to look at his physique, but Melvin Manhoff is 38 years old. And a veteran of some, you know, 45 mixed martial arts fights plus a professional kickboxing career. Um, so, I, you know, and I'm, obviously we don't, I'm not a scientist, but if you think of, if you, if, if it turns out that you have like, uh, if, if your chin is like the life bar in a video game that just kind of gets shorter and shorter as you accept more damage, like you would have to think Melvin Manoff's is probably about out of gas. Yeah. You could use one of those pulsating red hearts that you jump up and, <laughs> and nab with your character. 38. I really had no idea he was that old, but you know, it also makes you though feel like, well, he's kind of in a in a rough situation because because he's such an action fighter and gives guarantees you a certain level of violence whether he's on the giving or receiving end of it. People are going to still keep offering him money to fight. Like he's this is the problem that Gary Goodrich faced uh later in his career, especially when he was doing a lot of kickboxing over in Japan, was that uh for one thing, he didn't have a whole lot of work experience in anything else and, you know, didn't have any other thing where he could go and show up and then one night make 30 grand or whatever. Uh, and people kept saying like, well, hey, yes, you put this guy on the card, somebody's getting knocked out. He will guarantee you that whether it's him or somebody else. People want to see these knockouts. So keep signing them up. Keep having them come over here and fight. And then, you know, the next thing you know, he was starting to realize he had done some stuff he couldn't undo to his brain. And so you, you start to wonder if Manhoff isn't in the same kind of situation where the worst thing about him is not just that he keeps getting knocked out too easily, but also that he's built up this reputation that means that they will keep giving him fights even when they shouldn't. Uh, 38 years old and turning 39 on May 11th. So... He's all but 39, I guess you would say. Last question this week comes from Tim from Massachusetts. He writes, I assume you won't spend an entire round on World Series of Fighting. Insert an interruption from either co-host saying, you're damn right, Tim from Massachusetts. Oh, this has got us. But I know. And it goes on from there. But I'm sure there will be many insert creepy Ben Folk's voice, listener mail, emails about wow. that one wow. guy who showed up to a fight in the UFC wearing fucking basketball shorts. It deserves an are you fucking kidding me unless something even even more ridiculous happens, which, let's be real, is totally possible. Cody McKenzie lost his World Series of Fighting debut via disqualification because of an intentional headbutt. If you didn't see it, here's the link. I saw it. Did you see it? Yeah. McKenzie told the ref he shouldn't have pulled my hair. So instead of, I don't know, punching or elbowing the dude he was on top of, of which is legal as fuck, and in fact encouraged in MMA, McKenzie's mind brain goes, oh, I know. I'm going to do this thing that will at least get a point deducted or get me DQ'd. So 
solid idea, almost as good as showing up to a UFC fight in basketball shorts. We make a good team, Brain. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, question mark. goes on from there. It does go on. By the way, mad props to the ref for DQing McKenzie. Many refs, refs would not have done that. Yeah. That, I was actually thinking the same thing on that one because it seems like, you know, refs are always looking for an excuse just to, to keep the action going and not be the guy who has to say disqualification. And, I mean, we've seen worse headbutts, really. Right. E- easier, though, uh, just devil's advocate, easier to DQ a guy on a World Series of Fighting undercard fight than, like, UFC main event. Yeah, well, let's keep in mind that this is Cody McKenzie, who, as has been pointed out several times by Tim from Massachusetts in this question, once showed up to a UFC fight wearing fucking basketball shorts. With a tag on, though. Also, let's not forget about that part, because yeah, that's, no. that's the best part. Also, uh, when fighting in that one-night tournament thing, uh, had some blood taken out of his body in order to help him make weight. So it's possible that maybe Cody McKenzie's decision-making processes aren't all that sound. Yeah. I'd say we have some anecdotal evidence to suggest that that's the case. Um, and you know, capable of, of shifting into crazy gear, uh, pretty, pretty fast. Um, and, uh, like here's the thing with Cody McKenzie though. Is he, how tragic of a figure is he? Do you think? Because like, um, Cody McKenzie obviously, may not have been top flight UFC level and probably takes a lot of shit or took a lot of shit in the beginning because of his appearance. Uh, but at the same time, like a fighter who would kill most other fighters, like most other low level, like certainly kill any civilian and like better people. than, better than, people. Kill than people. most like mid level MMA fighters. Right. Right. And so like, Kind of, if you know, if you're just trying to see it from his point of view, kind of sucks that he's sort of a joke. Although at this point, now you're just a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Yeah, especially when you're like you, you're kind of hitting all the the high notes there, all, right in a row of you know having a weird thing in the UFC and then a weird thing outside of the UFC, and then you retire and then you come back and you get disqualified for headbutting someone. I mean, I don't know where we're going here. Uh, it's nowhere good. I'd wager. N- no, nowhere good. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, here, when you hear Cody McKenzie talk and say stuff about like why he thinks mixed martial arts sucks and why he wants to get out of it, I feel like, yeah, no, you make very sound points. Uh, I'd be all for that. Uh, and then he comes back and does some stuff like this and that's like, well, how are people not supposed to give an, are you fucking kidding me to that? Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern, you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the breakfast of champion newsletters that comes out uh, every Friday morning, catch you up on the news and notes that you miss from Monday to Friday when we're not recording the podcast. Maybe soon to be Tuesday to Friday. I don't know. We're going to have to figure that out. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Benson Henderson rolled into Broomfield, Colorado this past weekend 
in the altitude in front of a hostile crowd in Brandon Thatch's essentially hometown uh, and stepping up in weight to the welterweight division uh, and kind of acted like it wasn't no thing, like had had some some reasonably rough moments in the early going in the first couple of rounds, but I think ultimately taught Brandon Thatch a very hard lesson about what it takes to compete with the very best guys in the UFC. In the third and fourth round, he ended up uh, taking Brandon Thatch off his feet putting the fight into the uh, into the grappling stages where Ben Henderson obviously had a big advantage, and he ends up finishing a, a rear naked choke with about a minute left on the clock in the fourth round. Um, probably the most interesting thing about this to me, though, was seeing, uh, I guess, not only Ben Henderson finish this fight, but then uh, a reaction to Ben Henderson that we're not used to getting, both from the media and from fans. Uh, it seemed like he's a lot easier to like at welterweight when he is not the big guy in the fight, and uh, you know maybe feels a little bit a little bit more free and a little bit more aggressive. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, this was something he really needed career-wise because I think that especially it, it put some things into perspective, right? Because I I don't know how you scored those first two rounds, but I, I gave him both the thatch, and it looked to me like Henderson was in trouble. Like he seemed, uh, for one thing, way undersized against Brandon Thatch. He seemed like he was just constantly on the run um, trying to escape Brandon Thatch, had his back pushed up against the fence pretty much the entirety of those first two rounds. And he wasn't without some offense. You know, he could come forward and, and he was landing some good body shots and, and landing some punches, but it didn't seem like he really had anything on the feet that Thatch was worried about, and it seemed like Thatch was hurting him and, and was getting to him a little bit. Uh, and, you know, started to throw in those little leg trips and was just kind of keeping him guessing, keeping him off balance. And you thought, man, this is going to turn out to be one of those things where in retrospect we think, of course it was a b- bad idea for Benson Henderson to go up to welterweight and fight Brandon Thatch. Then he figures out, like, all right, let's try some takedowns. Let's see what this guy's got on the ground. And it turns out, not a whole lot. You know, like, I was really surprised. I guess it made me realize how little I've seen of Brandon Thatch on the ground. We talked, I think, a little bit about beforehand about how many first-round finishes he had coming into this fight. And, like, really quick first-round finishes, too. You know, where he knocked out Paulo Thiago, I think, Ten in two, in a two row, minutes. right? Something yeah. ridiculous. Like- uh, his other UFC fight, uh, he knocked out Justin Edwards in about a minute and a half. Uh, you look at the rest of his record in uh, smaller shows, and it was there's like a lot, it, several finishes there in under a minute uh, right away. So it seemed like uh, maybe we did not pay too close attention to whether this guy could still get in there and, and mix it up in round three and four, and if he had some grappling uh, ability to, to hang with a guy like Benson Henderson. Because it didn't seem like it was too tough for Henderson to pull off a takedown once he committed himself to it, and Thatch just pretty much immediately gave up his back. Uh, both times. Both times. Well, and, and, and then, well, actually twice in the fourth round since, like, he was scrambled up, but then you know, got dragged right back down. Well, and he, when he got taken down in the fourth round, and by the way, it was a sweet takedown by Benson Henderson there in the fourth round where he's trading punches with him and gets him moving right into the takedown and just effortless uh, to get him down there and then immediately goes to side control and Thatch immediately rolls and gives up his back. And you just, it made you wonder, wait a minute, there's some stuff missing here for this guy. And you, you don't know if it's that he just doesn't have that ground skill yet at all or if he... uh 
under the pressure, you know, sometimes guys will, will forget things they know uh, and do something dumb just because uh, their, you know, their experience level isn't, isn't where it needs to be for something like that. I don't know what it was, but I did think it was curious when Brian Stan made the remark the first time Thatch got his back taken that Leister Bowling, uh, who is uh, Thatch's wrestling coach there at the, uh, in Colorado, was worried about him getting into that position. That tells you something, that, that they knew that there were some holes in the guy's game. Yeah, and now uh, I guess for Benson Henderson, the interesting question is what he does now. He had given some lip service before the bout that this was going to be a temporary thing for him and that he would uh, go back down to lightweight no matter what happened. I think that I said last week on the show, yeah, unless he wins, then maybe welterweight starts to seem like a more appealing place. Uh, it sure felt like he had that Rory McDonald call out tucked into his back pocket and ready to go in the post-fight interview uh, in, in order to pull it out, but now I think we've got this interesting question on our hands because he did beat Brandon Thatch, who overcame a significant size advantage and ended up being able to take the fight into deep water and, and putting it into a place where Brandon Thatch had an obvious disadvantage. But that doesn't certainly doesn't make the point that, that Benson Henderson would be able to do that to a high level welterweight, like a, you know, one of the welterweights best, maybe a guy who's a little better rounded. And yet, as I sit here on Monday afternoon, I think staying at welterweight is the right move for Ben Henderson right now, because, uh, even if he doesn't fly quite as high as he did at 155 pounds, and even if he doesn't become champion, I still feel like, uh, since he kind of run out of real estate at lightweight, really, um, the stuff that he could do at welterweight right now would be more interesting and uh, would kind of beat anything he could do at lightweight. Am yeah, I right? I, I would want him to stick around. And I think, you know, we made a lot, I think, of the size difference, especially when we saw these two guys at the weigh-in. Uh, and you thought, man, Thatch yeah. is just towering over him. Uh, it's worth noting, though, that Thatch is pretty big for the weight class. You know, he's like 6'2", and you don't see a ton of welterweights who are 6'2". I mean, Henderson's, what, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, around there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's about what GSP was. GSP's like 5'10", 5'11". Uh, Rory McDonald is right around the same uh ballpark there so i think that if he got to fight some of those other guys we would see that the the size difference did not at least visually seem uh so intimidating i also was uh, interested in some of his quotes afterwards uh this was uh benson henderson after the fight talking about uh thinking about staying at 170 quote there's something to not cutting down not literally starving yourself to death not not literally. No, not literally. Uh, he has not yet died. No. What we go through to get ourselves down to weight, if we had to continue for another three, four, five, six days, would probably do some massive damage to our bodies. We kill ourselves to make weight. Being able to stay at 170, I wanted to see how the performance was. I know with a good five-week training camp, it'll I'll be even better. And I think that that is something that I think a lot of guys are, are thinking about these days. Uh, is, is the weight cut worth it? Is the juice worth the squeeze when it comes to that? Um, or are you hurting your own performance enough that you'd be better off giving up a little bit of size, uh, especially if you can have it in round four when you need a little more gas in the tank uh, for a main event bout like this? Uh, I don't. I would really like to see what he could do there. Uh, I, I like you said, I, he did seem to have that Roy McDonald call out ready, and that seems awesome. Like that is the kind of stuff we were missing from Benson Henderson, right? right? Is not only was you know he putting in some kind of very strategic performances in the fights, ones where he was squeaking out these decisions that a lot of people didn't think he deserved to win. Uh, but then when you'd get him on the mic afterwards, it was just a bunch of like thanking Jesus and not, not really giving you anything to, to sink your teeth into as a fight fan, trying to feel like you're getting to know this guy or, or, or where he's headed or anything to have him get on the mic and basically say like, 
yeah, I think this welterweight thing went all right. I'm, maybe I'll fight the number one contender next. That's fun stuff. Right. Uh, and just in terms of his fighting style, too, like I don't know if being in there with a bigger guy made him feel like he needed to show a little bit more urgency or like maybe even a little bit of uh, of desperation in there kind of. But it certainly seemed like even though he did fight a very, you know, well-planned and strategic fight, like uh, maybe he was a little bit more aggressive and uh, certainly went for it in the third and fourth round there uh, trying to make something happen against Brandon Thatch, which I think, you know, also does a little bit to like dispel our vision of him as a guy who like played in the margins of the unified rules uh, kind of better than anybody. So I thought that uh, all the way around, it was a good performance from him and, and good stuff to see. Let's talk about the million dollar question, though. Where is he hiding that toothpick in his mouth? Is that like inside the mouthpiece or I just don't understand where he could have that. OK, I was thinking about this, too, because if he has it inside the mouthpiece, he couldn't right, flip it right out at yeah. the end of the fights. Right? He didn't like reach into his into his mouth to, to use like his hand to take it out of there. Like he just did it with his tongue to where like a, by the time he stood up, he had the, the toothpick poking out of his mouth. So he must just have a toothpick in 24 hours a day, right? I mean, he to must have that level of comfort. Yeah. There must be some toothpick acrobatics he is capable of. Uh, it also, though, makes you wonder like, okay, if he feels like he has to have it in there for like good luck or like a comfort level thing or something, he, when he gets up to make sure that we can all see it immediately, like that's a different thing. That's a, right. he wants us to know that he had well, yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. If you didn't want us to know, it wouldn't be worth having it in there. I don't it's know. Still not worth having it in there. <laughs> in fact, somebody's going to get hurt that way. I, well, yeah, man. Can you imagine if you got knocked out and like you, your body went into that weird knocked out breathing that it does and you suck that toothpick straight into your throat? You know, that would be bad. I, bad stuff could happen. I also, Chad, uh, might feel like, uh, if I am the guy fighting the dude who has a toothpick in his mouth, maybe it's not as safe for me as I would like it. <laughs> yeah. Somehow I think that that dude having a toothpick in his mouth is the least of your worries, but I see your point still. All right. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, uh, I. I, I was perusing around the internet uh, earlier today. Uh, couldn't help but notice uh, there was something on uh, Bloody Elbow, I believe, about uh, Brendan Schaub talking about how he had, a, at one point, a, an addiction to, to OxyContin. Did you see this? They did, yeah. Uh, now, for one thing, I, I think uh, it's one of those things we don't really talk about in MMA, but is probably more common than a lot of people realize that, you know, you guys get hurt. They get legitimately hurt. Uh, Brendan Schaub talks about getting addicted to OxyContin uh, when he had to have nose surgery after getting his nose broken against Krokop. You're legitimately in pain. You start taking some of that stuff. And I'm telling you, after like three days of steady painkiller use, you're basically addicted. You basically have a physical dependence to it, uh, not to mention the psychological element. So I have a lot of sympathy for that. However, I did find it odd that when talking about this, uh, he says that, you know, this is right after the Crow Cop fight where he had a 10 to 11 month layoff uh, and then he fought Noguera, which didn't sound right to me. So I went and looked it up. He fought Crow Cop in March of 2011 and then fought Noguera in August of 2011. Um, so yeah, that's not a, that, that, that's like a five month layoff, right? That's not really a layoff, so to speak. No, just kind of the normal period between fights for a lot of fighters. Are you fucking kidding me? Even fighters don't know what their careers look like when they think back on it. Imagine those guys that don't have Wikipedia pages. 
It just it's a blur for them. No, there's no way to know. Ben, I'm going to start my Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week just by reading a list of names. Uh, Gasan Umalatov. Nailed it. Tim Means. Go Actually, ahead. Didn't say nail. nailed it. The Dirty Bird. Uh, Rodrigo de Lima. Alex Garcia. William Macario. And Kichi Kunamoto. Are you fucking kidding me? Who are these people? Oh, that's right. These are the the list of dudes that Neil Magny has defeated during his current and much hyped six fight win streak in the UFC. The one that started all the way back in February of 2014 on the heels, by the way, of back to back losses to Sergio Moraes and Seth Bekinski. Uh, Magny, I guess, showed up looking large and in charge like he always does last weekend and choked out Kunamoto in the third round. Uh, and I guess as an aside, this is the, the current state of the UFC where actually a guy like Kunamoto can show up riding a three fight win streak himself in the octagon with, by the way, victories over Louise Dutra Jr., Daniel Serafian and Richard Walsh. So there's a murderer's row <laughs> for you. Uh, and nobody even knows and nobody knows who he is, but dear God, at this point, can we please get Neil Magny somebody to fight like an actual human? Are you fucking kidding me? I think we're going with, with volume, sheer volume when it comes to Neil Magny. That's that's what it seems to be at this point. Line up Tim Means again. What's the Dirty Bird up to? Tim Means rematch. What? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, it's an interesting time for performance-enhancing drug use in mixed martial arts. You know Anderson Silva popped positive. Then Wait, what? The one that really shocked you, Hector Lombard, uh, dude who walks around looking like a damn He-Man doll. He popped positive as well. Now, some of this stuff is going to get sorted out, we're told, at Tuesday's Nevada State Athletic Commission hearing, where we got a lot of uh, substance users on the docket. Uh, but then knowing the NSAC, maybe all we'll decide is to talk about it at a later meeting. But then on Wednesday, the UFC is planning its own press conference to talk about drug use and drug testing and announce something. I don't know what. No one knows what just yet. But it seems like, if nothing else, we've all agreed that something's got to be done here. That shit is just getting way out of hand. Does it not yeah, uh, and I guess on Wednesday I fully expect Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta to show up and reinstitute the company-wide year-round drug testing policy that they were originally planning to institute at the beginning of this year, but then uh, for various reasons, I guess, including the debacle with Kung Lee uh, in Hong Kong, decided to call that off. Um, my thing is... Well, and let me just say, I think anything short of that will be a disappointment and won't really be satisfactory. Uh, but in addition to that, do you remember when they had the Reebok press conference and then we showed up on the CME the week after and talked about how it seems like at every press conference that the UFC gives, uh, there's a bunch of stuff that they don't want to tell us and a bunch of stuff that seems like it's supposed to be secret and a bunch of stuff where it doesn't seem like even they know really what the answers are. You're saying hashtag the time is not always now? I'm saying hashtag that shit isn't going to cut it this time. Well, hashtag I want answers 
hashtag tell me what's going on. And see, that's where I, I think that this is either an opportunity or an especially fraught situation for mm -hmm. the UFC. Because, like you said, before there was talk last year of the UFC instituting its own program, uh, there were rumors that they were going to partner with USADA uh, or somebody, you know, very credible to do this for them. And that's what we've been saying for a long time that they should do is outsource this to somebody else that that's their business, that they know uh, exactly how to do this stuff and that they have a, a trustworthy reputation in that industry. Let them handle it. Admit that you can't handle it on your own. Let and just cut them a check and let them do it. And it seemed like maybe the USC was going to do that and then backed off it. Uh, and now if you have to turn around like two months later and say, Oh no, no, wait, we're going to do it again. Doesn't it already come off as like kind of a desperate, like stopgap measure? Like, you know, you realize that the, there's a, a leak in the boat and you're just trying to plug it as fast as possible. So then you really have to come with something good. It can't feel like you threw it together at the last minute. Uh, and that's going to be tough to do. Right. And it is going to feel like a, like, you know, uh, <laughs> a backstep, I guess. But at the same time, I think it's also going to read like uh, a situation where even these guys know that like we've, we've gone too far. Like we've finally gotten to the point where, comprehensive testing is needed and hey man like i think at times in the past you could make a fairly compelling case if you were a uh, mixed martial arts promoter that maybe you didn't want to know right what was going on in the training camps you didn't want to know what these guys were doing after all like your your job was kind of just to promote the fights and like maybe there was some blissful ignorance there uh if you believe that there was ignorance there but i think that we're past that point now i think that we are officially at the point where it makes more financial and promotional sense to bite the bullet and pay whatever this is going to cost uh and clean up the sport because because otherwise i think we're getting dangerously close to a tipping point where uh you know the future will be affected yeah and see that's the other issue too is i think that uh, I think you're right that maybe the UFC saw it from a perspective of if you do this testing, you might find out some stuff that you can't unlearn uh, and expose like a, a truth that uh, people were ignorant of beforehand. Right. But that's already – that one's already done. Like we, when Anderson Silva tested positive and then Hector Lombard got nailed right after that, like and all that stuff kind of come boom, 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 one right after another, you're already at the situation where people – uh, are going to look at those recent examples and say, well, everybody's doping. The problem right. is incredibly widespread. Uh, and now the problem is not like, hey, people are going to find out who's doping. The problem is that if we don't hear more about it, we're just going to assume it's everybody. And you already hear fighters talking about like, hey, it kind of sucks that like there's this guilt by association going on. And there totally is. Like, And you can see why a clean fighter would get really frustrated uh, at that, among other things. But I feel like for the UFC, now is the point where you have to wonder, like, okay, even if it does cost you some money in paying for the programs and for, you know, you're going to lose a fight every once in a while where you have one planned and a guy fails a, a drug test in camp um, before the fight actually has a chance to happen and it's get, it gets ruled out. Yeah, you're going to lose some money sometimes that way. But this is thinking about long-term damage to the brand territory right now because if you don't do something and if you don't do something that really has an impact where – we all sit back and say, okay, that was the thing that needed to happen. Uh, you're going to start losing fans that won't come back. I think you're already starting to see some of that from that Anderson Silva drug test, that those are, are, are having a real impact on how people feel about the sport and how fighters feel about the sport. And if you don't do something there, 
uh, the damage is going to be so great that you're not going to be able to throw together a press conference and announce any one thing that will undo it. Yeah, and, like, I know that I'm kind of a firebrand on this issue, but, like, personally, as a fan, I feel like I'm at the point where uh, I just feel like we need to accept whatever consequences are inherent in cleaning up the sport because we just need to clean it up or, frankly, like, shut it down, uh, kind of, you know? So, like, uh, personally, I'm willing to accept almost any consequence. Like, if the sport is not as good because guys aren't on PEDs, dudes aren't jacking EPO and can't fight five rounds anymore, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with more injuries. I'm cool with more guys pulling out of fights. Uh, because I just feel like it, anything else is a is a kind of a farce at this point, honestly. Yeah, and I've read your, your five-point plan for how what the UFC should do here about it. And I think a lot of the, the issue, uh, for one thing, I think, it's not just a, a matter of doing the drug testing and catching people. It's also what do you do after that point, right? right? Which is a sticky issue. It is. It's a really tough one. And, you know, you look at some of the other, uh, like some different codes that uh, other drug testing bodies have for athletes and other sports. And, and some of them, you know, it's like you, your first positive test and it's like three or four year ban, which Man, that would kill it. And that, there goes half your career as an right. MMA fighter. Which at this you know? point could be worth it. I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying, like, the thing that I think is sticky about it is that you can't really fire people because of it, right? Because then, like, if you fired Anderson Silva tomorrow, uh, Scott Coker would call him and then he would maybe go fight in Bellator. And like, just from a pure business standpoint in the UFC, that does not seem like a viable option. So I think you're left with really long ass suspensions. Yeah. Uh, really long ass suspensions is one of the ways you can go there. It's also a question of, um, you know, I've, I've heard this argument a lot recently where are the positive tests proof that we're getting somewhere on cleaning up the sport or are the positive tests just proof that the problem is way more widespread than we knew? Like, is it going to have to get worse uh, before it gets better? Because it, it seems to me like what we want is not to catch a bunch of drug users, right? What we want is for fighters to stop using so right. many damn drugs. And in order to get that, though, it seems like you've got to start catching enough people uh, to put that fear into them that, like, it's no longer safe to do this stuff as long as, you know, you do it within this time frame and you get off by this point, which is how it has been for a long time in mixed martial arts. So you, you need a number of high-profile drug test failures like this to prove that to them, like, hey, look, there's a new sheriff in town, basically, you're going to get caught, but then you also need, you know, the, the, the stick portion of it to come down and say, and if you get caught, the punishment will be so severe that it's in no way worth the risk. And I just wonder if we are ready for that, like if we, if we have the stomach for that right now. I would say yes, personally. Like, well, you do because you're just a, you're a mean motherfucker, <laughs> right? Authoritarian, just iron fist, velvet right. gloves. I wonder because you say stuff like, I, you know, you'd be okay with more injuries and fights not being as good, and dudes can't go hard for five rounds because they're not on a bunch of EPO and shit. I wonder if the average fan feels the same. No, I think there's an awful lot of apathy out there. I think there's an awful lot of like just flat not caring what what these guys are doing. But I also think that is to like, uh shortchange the sport like people don't care i think because they view it as like the wild west two guys fighting in a bar room kind of like it doesn't have the same uh history and like uh tradition and frankly like profile or respect as like a normal sport uh so i feel like 
you know, the fan base doesn't care, but I, I try to come at it the other way. I, I want to clean this sport up. I want it to have as, as much legitimacy as, as it possibly can. Um, and you know, I, I think that maybe the random testing that Nevada started doing is hopefully started to open some people's eyes. I would think if you were a long-term drug cheat and Anderson Silva suddenly got popped, you would be like, Oh damn, like I better be careful or maybe even stop doing this. But, uh, I don't know. Well, we'll have to see what happens that the, uh, Press conferences on Wednesday, like as you said, they could announce anything. Hopefully, we're or nothing. We're going the yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, we're going with the whole ball of wax, but uh, that'll at least give us something to talk about next week. Um, as for right now, though, we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number three. Time. All right, Ben. Well, first things first. Say the name of the place where Bigfoot Silva and Frank Mir are fighting this weekend. Oh, you want me to say it? You're not. You don't feel confident. Well, you just nailed it before we went before we started recording. So well, I thought I could kick it to you, and you could you could roll on. It. I am, and I don't. I don't want to sound like a braggart here, but I'm 100 percent positive that I'm pronouncing this correctly. Genasio Gigantinho in Porto Alegre, Brazil. Uh, see, nailed it. Yeah. Now, does that mean the little giant gym? That's what I'm guessing. Sure. Sure it does. Popping off at the little giant, granddaddy of them all, in Porto Alegre. Well, you know it's a big event if it's going down at the little giant. And you got the main event to match here at the little giant. Frank Mir rolls in on the heels of four consecutive losses, and he's going up against Big, Bigfoot Silva, who obviously is a two, four, and one in his last handful of bouts. Um, and we were just talking before we started recording about how this kicks off uh, kind of an underwhelming stretch of UFC events with uh, Bigfoot Mir this weekend and then <clears throat> Rousey versus Zingano and Pettis versus Dos Anjos coming up in the next few weeks, both of those uh, pay-per-view cards and, and decent little main events, but I don't know that anyone would, would write home about the full cards. And then March 21st, you've got Damian Maya versus Ryan LaFlair, April 4th. Chad Mendez versus Ricardo Lamas. Uh, that'll make that'll make the hardcores happy. Uh, April 11th, Gonzaga versus Crow Cop Two from Krakow. Krakow. So uh, you know we're into mid-April before we get into Rockhold Machida, and so the next few weeks here uh, strictly for the hardcores. <laughs> you're I saying, guess you might you're say. saying we got Rousey Zangano, then. Uh... You know, Pettis Dos Anjos, and and then it's Katie Bar the door. Huh? We got to just hunker down and and get through it. Is that what you're saying? A little bit, and like even those two pay per views aren't necessarily knockout punches. You know, the uh, uh, I don't think anyone's complaining about watching uh, Anthony Pettis fight Rafael Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos is a tough guy, but I also don't know that the world at large really knows who that dude is. So like that could be one where. Uh, where you got the hardcore MMA fans tuning in and, and, you know, not a lot of other people, even though Alistair Overeem and Johnny Hendricks are both on that card. Uh, but I guess just focusing in on this weekend for a moment, uh, I'm tempted to just ask what's really going on here. Like what's our, what's our best hope for this card that it's short or like what's, 
<laughs> like, what's the best we can hope for here? For this card as a whole, I mean, it is one of those things where, and we've seen this a few times uh, with the UFC recently, especially when it comes to heavyweights, it seems, but especially with fighters of a certain generation as well, where the, the main event bout is one of, of kind of anti-stakes, where it's not a matter of who is going to win and punch their ticket to the next level, but who is going to win and buy themselves just a little more time to keep showing up and keep getting paid for it? Because it does kind of seem like one of those fights where, you know, somebody's probably going to get knocked out uh, and it's probably going to be kind of sad. You're probably going to feel a little bit bad about it afterwards, a little bit guilty about how you spent your time. Uh, and then the questions about whether that person should even be fighting after that point uh, will only get louder and more frequent. Uh, and that's... That's all, honestly one of the better case scenarios. The other one that we uh, alluded, alluded to earlier on the show is that it goes five ugly goddamn rounds of old-ass heavyweights wheezing on each other. That's also a possibility, and even worse, because then you don't even come out of there with, with one awesome guy. I would say there's always the potential for a surprise thriller, all of Bigfoot, Silva, and Mark Hunt, but I think we remember uh, how the news broke on that one after we all had a really good time watching it, so... You know, who's not say this couldn't happen again, except for maybe the commission testing over there at the Little Giant might be not quite as astute. Who knows? Uh, but I don't know, man. I mean, it, it does seem like one of those fights where uh, this this is basically a, a fight pass show, right? But we're putting it on the TV. Yeah, I mean, I guess small victories. I'm going to go ahead and assume that Porto Alegre, Brazil is on the water somewhere and maybe not. I don't know, a mile up in the air, like Broomfield, Colorado. There you go. So maybe we don't totally get into a situation where uh, guys are grabbing their own shorts and breathing on each other. We are talking about some old-ass heavyweights, though. That's true. and But I think you're right to say kind of negative stakes for this fight because uh, even the guy who loses, I'm going to say, doesn't necessarily mean anything definitive, right? Because, I mean, Frank Mir is already 0-4, so if we were going to make some kind of impassioned call for his retirement, I'm not sure what the difference between 0-4 and, and 0-5 really is. And, I don't know. Really? Come on. Well, they're both bad. Yeah. I will tell you but that. 1-4 and four is a turnaround, my man. You see what I'm saying? 1-4 <laughs> and four does sound a lot better than 0-5. I'll yeah. give you that. But at the same time, it doesn't sound all that much better than 2-4-1, and one, which is where Bigfoot Silva comes into this fight. Of course, the uh, we all remember the majority draw against Mark Hunt, which was later turned into a no contest uh, because Bigfoot Silva tested positive for some substances, right? Yeah, which he then blamed on that same doctor who was... Uh, Sticking up for Anderson Silva once the news broke that he had failed. So you can connect your own dots there. Uh, good news, according to Wikipedia, elevation of Porto Alegre, Brazil, 30 feet. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. 10 meters, man. So, like, if we went there, it would just be like we've been blood doping for months. Yeah. We would basically, they'd we'd accuse be, us of being be supermen. all up on the EPO, living up here 3,000 feet or whatever the hell we're at. Also, the pictures on Wikipedia make Porto Alegre look lovely. So there's that. So you get some nice vistas. Uh, vistas uh, out the ass up an, in Porto Alegre. An, an early night of fights, which is nothing to complain about. Um, Edson Barboza and Michael Johnson might turn out to be fun. You got Smiling Sam Alvey on the card. Rustam Havilov. He's going to show up and do some stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I don't You know, and honestly, I feel like there's a little different expectation. You shift your, your fight night event to Sunday night. 
I don't feel like I need the same caliber uh, of like just pure name brand firepower. I think you can get by with a little. I don't know. I mean, we've talked before about the Sunday night stuff. You seem to kind of run out of gas sometimes. Uh, yeah, but this one's early, so I'm kind of looking forward to that since I'm not going to crush a dozen beers while I'm watching this. Uh, you, you might. Uh, but you know, depends on how my Monday looks, my man. What do I got on the docket? <laughs> you don't have shit on the docket. We <laughs> both know that. True. Especially if we move the CME to Tuesdays. Oh man, you just sleep all day. Uh, but I mean, I feel like it's one of those fights where, like, when you're trying to get me pumped up for Antonio Silva and Frank Mir, um, we're really just finding out like who gets to stay around and and who has to seriously think about going home. Which I'm not saying is necessarily a like it's not not compelling. But it is a little bit depressing. And really, like, kind of a, a sad end for either of these guys, right? Like, Frank Mir, the former UFC heavyweight champion, a guy who, uh, uh, who knows what might have been had he not gotten in that freak, uh, SUV on motorcycle accident that, that derailed his, his early run with the, the heavyweight title. And then that's what you get for holding that cursed belt. I guess that's true. Bigfoot Silva, obviously, uh, sky high when he was a lead XC heavyweight champ, right? And then, uh, eventually became one of the guys to beat Fedor over in Strike Force. Um, so like, you know, guys who achieved some stuff in, in their careers and now, uh, are definitely in, in the twilight of that, I guess you would say. Yeah. Uh, it makes you wonder to what extent they realize that they are in the twilight of it. Does it not? Well, I think if you wake up one morning 0 oh, and 5. But if you're 1 and 4. 1 and 4, on the other hand, a whole different ballgame. Who wins this, do you think? I'm going to say uh, Bigfoot Silva via the KO. Really? Yeah. Hmm, I was going to say Frank Mir. Well, there I was, you go. But I was, I was not going to feel very good about it. So yeah. you, your confidence alone uh, kind of convinced me just now. Well, yeah. No, I'm my confidence is unshakable in Bigfoot Silva. Uh, I just I keep you know thinking back to him knocking out. Alistair Overeem, um, which now that I look at it was uh, two years ago. Seems like it just yeah. happened, but that's two years ago. I keep thinking back to him getting knocked out by Andrei Arlovsky, Again, which when, actually did just happen. Yeah, that that was pretty recently. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I guess like, are we to the point with both of these guys where if they just show up and look okay? Not suspiciously good, mind you, <laughs> but just pretty good. Just good enough. Good enough uh, for the age bracket, for the master's division mm-hmm. that they're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, turn out a, a pretty good show. Uh, nothing awful or too sad happens. Do we just say that's a victory for everybody? Yeah, man. And then we're rolling straight into uh, UFC 184 the next weekend. So been there, done that. Throw it in the... In the remembrance pile. Yeah, that remembrance pile. That's a good one. You've got a remembrance pile, right? I've got several. All right, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week, since we've clearly wrung this out like an old sponge. Uh, ben, this week I'm just saying that if I'm being really, truly honest, I have to admit that I am as excited to watch the big homie Manny Newton fight the even bigger homie Liam McGeary a week from Friday in the Bellator cage as I am about any of the fights uh, this month. And honestly, I'm even more excited about it after watching those two dudes engage in some very 
very, very half-hearted trash talk on last week's Bellator broadcast with McGeary showing up wearing his snow cap on on Skype like he was doing FaceTime with his parents from the freshman dorm is kind of what it looked like. Uh, and then you got Manny Newton uh, standing up there with Jimmy Smith earnestly getting his feelings hurt when McGeary uh, kind of used the colloquial expression that he was going to quote-unquote kill him in the fight. And then McGeary almost sort of apologizing for it once he found out that Manny was kind of bothered by it. Um, and then at the end, both guys casually agreeing that the other guy would either get knocked out or submitted. So I'm saying bring it on, man. There's magic in the air. Uh, I hope that we all, as MMA tastemakers, give this fight its due next week and that we don't get totally distracted and lost in the UFC 184 hype and lead up, man, because this, I'm ready for this. I'm just saying. Just saying. The big homie. How, how can you not be into the big homie? The bigger homie. With his coincidences and his deja vus and whatnot. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, you remember how a couple weeks ago I did that story about the, uh, the UFCs or the, the market for MMA and UFC memorabilia and autograph stuff? Yeah, yeah bottom of the barrel. I remember and that. And how it was very uh, entertaining lifestyle piece and how... Uh, We're out of those now. There's all no the, more lifestyle pieces. All the money that the UFC uh, is apparently making by selling those signed posters um, and, you know, doing the math on them, kind of averaging out how much they sell those posters for. Seems like, you know, close to in the neighborhood of just under or just over a million dollars a year they're making what? from having fighters sign those posters that they then turn around and sell. Uh, and it doesn't seem like they're giving the fighters a piece of that. Um, or at least nobody will say if they are, which is usually an indication, indication that they're not. Well, keep that number in your head for a second because... Wait, what number? Around a million dollars. Okay, I got it. Okay. Um, because... I was talking uh, earlier today to um, Dr. Margaret Goodman from VADA about just, you know, the the things the UFC could possibly do, what it might be about to announce uh, Wednesday at this press conference uh, on the drug testing subject, uh, a proposal that VADA put together uh, along with a bunch of other organizations trying to, you know, make a pitch to the UFC for here's what we could come and do for you if you want to. And I asked her, you know, about what would it cost a year to run a testing program, a real meaningful testing program for the UFC as a third party. And the number she gave me uh, when I crunched that out, depending on exactly how many fighters are on the roster and how many times you want to test them, hey, you're looking at around a million, million three. I'm just saying you could basically take the money you're making from having fighters sign these fucking posters, which is really not seriously hard work for anybody, and take that money and then turn it right around for your own supplemental drug testing program operated by a trustworthy, credible third party, solves a lot of your problems, and you don't even have to go seriously out of pocket for it. All you had to do was have some fighters sit down and sign some damn posters for you, man. I'm just saying, it doesn't have to be that hard. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for the Co-Main Event Podcast this week. We'll be back next week to tell you everything that happened at the Little Giant down in Porto Alegre, beautiful Porto Alegre. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. You know, I can't believe I showed up here today to record this thing wearing a Fedor shirt and wearing an IFL sweatshirt. You didn't even, you didn't even mention it. I saw the Fedor shirt when you came in. You were going to say anything? You didn't comment on it. You know who you should not tell that you